This is Race Capital with me, Naomi Isaac, where we interrogate racial narratives in our place, space, and time here in Richmond, Virginia, the former capital of the Confederacy. It's Inauguration Day. Today marks the end of the Trump administration's overt campaign of white supremacy. That will make Joe Biden the 46th figurehead to inherit control over America's 244-year-old settler colonial project. And as we say adios to 45 and await his impeachment trial, we keep in mind that all presidencies on stolen land are illegitimate. America was incorporated to benefit wealthy white men, and the laws were written to protect them, all while criminalizing everyone else in order to cease the possibility of a working-class insurrection. In addition to the inauguration, January also marks the beginning of the 2021 legislative session here in Virginia. The Virginia General Assembly is the oldest legislative body in the nation, and even with the rise of the blue wave in the past year, Virginia has continued its legacy of institutionalized racism by resisting adopting the truly progressive policies needed to actually repair the harm committed against non-white communities. Today on Race Capital, we bring you the latest legislative updates. Co-host and creator Chelsea Hicksweiss speaks with guest Luca Connolly from the Richmond Community Bail Fund to discuss how to oppose the anti-bail fund bill in the House and Omari Al-Qaddafi from Leaders of the New South to discuss various pieces of housing legislation that are critical for protecting the inherent human rights of all Virginians. Later, we hear from co-host Kalia Harris as she discusses higher education legislation and again from Chelsea Higgswise with updates on marijuana legalization. First, we start off with the race capital reframe. This is Race Capital with your hosts, me, Naomi Isaac. Me, Kalia Harris. And me, Chelsea Higgs-Wise. And we are here on the week of Wednesday, January 20th with the Race Capital Reframe. Let's get started with our local headlines. This week in Eviction Watch, there are 109 unlawful detainers being heard in the courts. The heaviest day is Thursday, with 68 unlawful detainers being heard. Something to note for this week is that the courts were closed on Monday for Martin Luther King Jr. Day. We report these numbers on air, but please understand that these are households, families, and people that are being put at risk of eviction during a pandemic. Unlawful detainers are the first step a landlord takes to evict a tenant from their homes. We will be talking more about housing a little later in our episode, and we'll continue to watch the courts. Well, for our folks who like to drink on the go, Virginia lawmakers are now considering allowing open container districts and making delivery cocktails legal for another year. Local restaurant owners have reported throughout the pandemic that the temporary provision allowing them to sell cocktails to go has been helpful to their bottom line in this critical time. And now we are watching House Bill 1879 introduced by Delegate Belova of Fairfax, which proposes to extend restaurants' ability to sell cocktails to go through July 1, 2022. This, again, started during the pandemic, and it'll be interesting as we continue to move forward with other essential items like cannabis, if these will be things that we can pick up on the go without being criminalized, as well as if they're being allowed for delivery. Next up is the Virginia Attorney General Mark Herring has authorized state police to investigate the Richmond mayor, LeVar Stoney. Wait, What? (laughs) Run it back. <laughs> wow. 
That's not funny. Mm, it is. So yes, Richmond Mayor LeVar Stoney and his whole administration is under investigation. It looks like his administration's work to take down the city's Confederate monuments last year now has been assigned a special prosecutor confirmed Friday. This comes after Kim Gray, the former city council person. Yes, no longer an elected official, raised concerns in 2020 about a $1.8 million no-bid contract for the removal of the statues last year. A Richmond Circuit Court judge assigned Augusta County Commonwealth Attorney Timothy A. Martin to investigate. Now, y'all, I know that usually we're not uh, too friendly with the Kim Gray of things, but this is this is like one of those times where they're just continuing to fight each other and point the finger and we get to just sit back and be entertained. Yeah, it's entertainment. And then it's also frustration, right? Because we know that nothing's going to come out of this. Mayor LeVar Stoney and his administration are not going to face any consequences. Meanwhile, people were beaten and arrested for the very same thing that he committed some kind of fraud to do. So a little bit funny just because, you know, we're not friendly with Stoney either, but also annoying. Not to mention he went on a national media tour to get all the accolades for taking down less statues than the people were able to do for free. And I think that that's something that he's already kind of reaped the rewards of taking down the statues, but it's not going to change the material realities for Black people anyways. In other news, Nicholas Reyes, a 55-year-old El Salvadoran native, will be paid $115,000 in compensation for being held in solitary confinement for over a decade. And even though the ACLU has reached a settlement on behalf of Reyes, who is non-English speaking, the Virginia Department of Corrections still denies that Reyes have been held in solitary confinement for 12 years or that they had any liability in their handling of Reyes, who is mentally ill. I'm sorry, less than anything less than a million for over a decade in solitary confinement in a place where people likely don't speak your language and clearly did not care about his well-being. It's just ridiculous. Yeah, such low compensation for putting someone through such a mentally exhausting and like debilitating scenario is gross. And then the fact that they fail to even recognize or apologize, like accept any culpability is like very typical of Virginia institutions. Yeah, I mean, that's about $10,000 a year, less than $10,000 a year. And just thinking about lost wages alone without, you know, the time, the trauma, that's just ridiculous. Lawmakers in the Virginia Senate stripped Senator Amanda Chase of Chesterfield County of her last committee assignment this past Tuesday. In a resolution, it was cited that she instigated an insurrection against the United States. Last week, The Senate Democratic Caucus asserted that the Republic gubernatorial contender, Amanda Chase, helped empower a failed coup d'etat, end quote, at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th and called on her to resign from office. Well, that's not much, but I guess that means that they did kind of something. I don't know, but I do. I have seen that there is a link out there that you can sign to call officially for Amanda Chase's resignation as well. With Amanda Chase, they seem to just be like a day late and a dollar short. I mean, I don't I don't know what this is supposed to do. She has like a, a lot of social influence on right wingers in the in the Commonwealth. So I don't really you know, they really could have acted a lot quicker, but I guess it's something. Yeah, like before the people in her entourage were found at multiple white supremacist attacks, even before the Capitol, they could have stopped Amanda Chase 
And in an update to Xavier Hill's story, during an impromptu news conference last Saturday by the family of Xavier, a Black teenager killed by Virginia State Police on January 9th, the 18-year-old's mother disputed much of the police version of events that left her son dead following what the police said was a high-speed chase in the westbound lanes of the interstate. Latoya Benton, Xavier's mom, as well as members of his family have seen the footage and maintain that Xavier exited the vehicle with his hands up. They have taken to social media to demand answers and to call for community support, currently demanding that the Goochland County Commonwealth's attorney, D. Michael Caudill, ultimately will decide whether the troopers will face any criminal liability in the shooting to release the dashboard cam footage to the public. They've demanded that the officers be fired and arrested. So just another heartbreaking story. I know I saw some of the videos that Xavier's mom posted of him dancing and just being a young Black boy. And as someone who is an older sister and an auntie of wonderful Black men and boys in my life, I've just been really having a hard time with Xavier's story and also juxtaposed with all of this white supremacist violence and to know that the police are still killing Black people. I don't know how y'all are dealing with it, but it's been a little difficult for me. Yeah, I I really hope that, you know, non-Black people understand the mental trauma that Black folks are going through right now and that Black folks are really taking some time to just sit and and take a step back from all the violence that we're seeing occurring right now. I mean, for me, it's been really hard to continue to see that, you know, after even a summer or a year of protesting police violence, I still day after day am seeing so many reports of police violence and uh, young Black folks ending up dead and shot by police uh, very recently. And it's just like every week, you know, there's just a new hashtag. And we want to also update everyone that Orlando Carter Jr. was released on bond and is with his family healing, but still has a long way to go as They have to now pay for their home electronic monitoring system, as well as the medical bills, as well as just really heal and prepare for a trial against state-sanctioned violence to hear another story like Xavier coming in like what, less than a week or so after and family after family coming forward. This is just something like you all said that we're just continuing to, to manage and survive with. And we will have to keep holding these families in support and be ready to mobilize and show up when it's time to mobilize and show up. In national news, we're going to start off with our COVID watch. The nation has surpassed 23.6 million COVID-19 cases, and deaths have climbed to over 400,000. In the U.S., a person dies from COVID-19 every 26 seconds, and the disease is claiming more lives now than any other condition including heart disease, according to the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington. In Virginia, we've had over 450,000 total cases and 5,768 deaths. Sabrina Moreno of the Richmond Times-Dispatch reports that the Virginia Department of Health reported over 17,000 new cases in Virginia last Sunday and this Monday alone. Y'all, that's two days. Health experts are attributing the numbers that we are seeing now to the holidays. In vaccine news, many major cities in the state, including Richmond, have rolled out phase two of the vaccine starting on Monday. Phase two includes people aged 65 and older, frontline essential workers, and people that are considered high risk. Dr. Danny Avula, 
told reporters that there were over 300,000 dose requests filed throughout the state last week, but there were only 106,000 to allocate. And due to the limited supply, phase two vaccination clinics in the Richmond area are prioritizing workers in the first three categories outlined by the VDH. Those are the police, correctional facilities, homeless shelters, and schools. As of right now, Virginia, the state who has a governor who is a doctor, ranks 43rd in the country for percentages of vaccines given. I can't even read, like reading those numbers gives me so much anxiety. And again, Virginia has a medical doctor and he's all over the media giving interviews because he's a doctor, but yet we are still not doing anything very well at all. What are we so excited about having a doctor for? Y'all really, people need to stop claiming that because I don't even, at this point, it's not even relevant. Yeah. And to think that when you look at the news, you see all the pictures of people getting vaccinated. I know when I scroll on my social media, all I'm seeing is folks getting vaccinated, but pushed up against these numbers and seeing where we compare nationwide, it actually really opens our eyes to what the reality is. Yes, which is why I just want to continue, you know, because we know that this method is ineffective. I want people to continue to remember that this is a very short term solution and it's not going to be enough to solve the pandemic. On the West Coast, as of Tuesday, California has now passed 3 million coronavirus cases. Officials now believe that one third of the residents in L.A. County, the most populous county in America, have contracted the virus. And as cases continue to rise, researchers have recently identified a new strain of COVID in a dozen counties and have linked it to several large outbreaks in Santa Clara County. And as the cases go up, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris took part in a lighting ceremony at the reflecting pool of the Capitol on Tuesday night ahead of today's inauguration events. The ceremony included lighting 400 luminaries that represented the 400,000 deaths in the U.S. from COVID-19. We can start this year with empathy and acknowledge these 400,000 deaths, but I don't understand how we're doing that out of one side of our mouth and then the other side of our mouth, refusing to do any type of shutdown, having this mandate of reopening schools that does not align with what's actually happening with vaccines, with actually happening with the new cases they're still going up. I don't understand how we're actually being empathetic. If they were so empathetic and sympathized with us, where is the money? Where is the money to prevent these deaths? Where's the support? Empathy only goes so far. We need to start seeing action. And I think it's, you know, it's like a case where they always use these symbolic gestures to pretend like they're actually doing something. How much some luminaries cost? Right. How is a luminary going to bring someone's family member back that has died from this preventable virus? And he's saying that he's going to listen to the science. That's the Democrats' whole cornerstone is that they're going to listen to the scientists. But like Chelsea said, he's determined within his first 100 days to have schools reopened. That's just not going with the science. And he's not willing to consider a shutdown of the economy, which like you're saying, Naomi, like we need stimmies. We need to be paid to stay at home to mitigate this virus. Joe Biden was on record saying, quote, I'm not going to shut down the economy, period. Period. He said, period, y'all. And this was in November. He said, quote, no national shutdown. There is no circumstance that I can see that would require a total national shutdown, end quote. So not 400,000 deaths. Right. That's not enough. We got to go to half a million. We're going to have to get to a million before people open their eyes and see what is going on and actually listen to the science. 
It's not going to be a million. He said there will be no number because <laughs> then we'll be like, well, maybe it'll be 2 million. Maybe when it's 10 million. I mean, right. at the, we know that when I hear about you opening schools, it's really so that you can get more people back to work. And it has nothing to do with getting people educated or anything like that. It's, it's continuing this labor economy, this commerce economy that has nothing to do with keeping people safe or healthy. We have to be ready to challenge the status quo as the 46th administration is inaugurated today and understand that the only way that we will mitigate this virus is not through symbolic gestures, but real action. A family in Killeen, Texas, is now protesting the murder of their relative, 52-year-old Patrick Warren Sr., who was shot by police after they arrived at his family's home in response to a mental health call. NBC News reports that the fatal shooting took place after the family of Warren called police to ask that a mental health professional be sent to their home. Instead, Officer Reynold Conchies arrived at the scene where he tased and eventually murdered Patrick Warren Sr. The family is now calling for his arrest. Well, here we are again. Here we are again. And I unfortunately saw this video and it is horrifying. It was senseless. There was no need for it. And again, how do you reform this? And I uh, I was reading reports that, you know, the day before they'd also called for a mental health check and a mental health professional had come to the scene. You know, in both days, I think Warren was only reported to be outside praising the God, you know, and how does that situation turn fatal? This is why we say the police cannot be reformed and cannot be involved in mental health checks. We need a complete separation from policing and mental health because mentally ill people are the ones who are being disproportionately impacted by police violence every single day. There's no amount of training that can fix that. In other news, last Thursday marked the second time in less than five weeks that the Trump administration executed a likely intellectually disabled death row prisoner without permitting them a judicial review. 52-year-old Virginia native Corey Johnson was executed by lethal injection at a federal prison in Terre Haute, Indiana. This makes Johnson the 12th federal inmate to be put to death by the federal government under the Trump administration. I will say that uh, as we are updating in legislation, that the bill to abolish the death penalty here in Virginia did pass one committee in the Senate. So we'll be continuing to watch that here on Race Capital. And even still, I saw that folks were defending the death penalty in our state and that folks are still saying that this is an acceptable way to, to quote unquote, punish people. And they're still equating the death penalty and life without parole as options for punishment for people in this country and in this state. And I just want to bring up while we're talking about this, that yes, the death penalty is terrible, but so is life without parole. Death by incarceration is the death penalty. Just as us putting people into jails right now during COVID-19 is a potential death sentence. So I just wanted to nuance our conversation about the death penalty because it really is complex. I also find it very interesting that people have so much faith that, you know, like police can be reformed and governments can be reformed, but they have no faith that our community members, after sitting in a cage for many years, reflecting on their life decisions and all the situations that, uh, you know, they've been in and, you know, really getting in touch with their faith that they can't be reformed. Just heartbreaking. After the events of January 6th, where white supremacist groups stormed the Capitol, the U.S. House of Representatives voted to officially impeach 45 for the second time. The House charged Trump with willful incitement of an insurrection after he encouraged insurrectionists to take back the Capitol. 
Trump was impeached 232 to 197, with all 222 Democrats voting in support. So the the next question is, what happens in the Senate? Will a conviction happen? Will jail time happen? Will this go past Trump and go into his family? Or will we also hear signs or calls for unity and leniency? And again, this idea that they can be reformed or this the, the entire machine that Trump used can be reformed. And as Naomi says, that we continue to not have the faith in our people of reform and rehabilitation. There's also this debate right now that people are like, oh, well, can we impeach him as a private citizen? Like maybe impeachment's only for a sitting president to remove them from office currently. So there's this, you know, it's kind of up in the air whether or not they actually will go through with the impeachment. Yeah. And I just wanted to call me the queen of complication this week. But I wanted to challenge our listeners to really think about this word insurrection and how we're using it. We've been using it a lot to describe these white nationalists and white supremacists, but there is a connection to the word insurrection in our own Black history and how we have staged insurrections. And I want us to think about what it means when we're using it for these white supremacists and how we're criminalizing the use of, you know, inciting an insurrection when insurrections have been what have gotten our people free in Haiti, here in sugar canes, fields, you know, that has gotten us free. And so I just want us to really think about this language that we're using because it doesn't matter what we use, right? Terrorists, insurrectionists, all of the, the criminalizing of those terms come back to black and brown people. And so I just wanted to sprinkle a little complication on this one too. Yes. In other news, last Friday, the NRA announced that it has filed for bankruptcy protection. The Associated Press reported that in an interview, NRA board member Charles Cotton made clear that the bankruptcy filing was motivated by litigation and regulatory scrutiny in what he called, quote, corrupt New York, end quote, not financial concerns. This comes just months after New York Attorney General Letitia James filed a lawsuit against the NRA seeking its dissolution after allegations emerged that top NRA executives illegally diverted tens of millions of dollars for questionable expenditures, including extravagant vacations and no-show contracts. So in the year where most schools were virtual, there was a record minimum of mass shootings, the NRA is going bankrupt. Interesting. And now they're seeking to incorporate Texas to like (laughs) have more of a chance when they go to court and like with the legal situations. Oh, I see. So that they'll have to hear their court cases in racist Texas. Right, exactly. (laughs) Come on, NRA. maybe, Maybe this is the last nail in the coffin. They were spending like hundreds of thousands of dollars per day. So that's like, ooh, y'all broke it established. <laughs> they did not watch the budget. For these card carrying members to find out that the executives were cutting all this money off the top and not even showing up for their contracts. Well, in international news, the number of people who have fled the Central African Republic since December is expected to reach over 60,000 people in the coming weeks. The growing election violence in the CAR has also led to the displacement of nearly 120,000 people. Voting was unable to take place in various regions of the country, with over 800 of the country's polling stations being shut down due to the threat of violence. The situation has been described as catastrophic, with top officials saying that there is a lack of food, water, and medical supplies. 
we're really seeing that food shortage issue take root. And I know that over the last week, Bill Gates also bought up a lot of farmland. And so as we're listening to these international stories, just realize that the global food supply is in a great crisis. And when we hear about lack of medical supplies, I think this is also, again, when people need to think about how migration, displacement, how COVID's going to exacerbate a lot of issues for those people. And then those issues are going to exacerbate the spread of COVID. So we're really in a, in a tough situation here globally. And I wish solidarity to all our siblings across the globe right now who are you know, just trying to stay alive. Mexico is set to become the world's largest cannabis market after passing legislation in late November that will legalize cannabis for a variety of uses. According to the bill, which was approved by Mexican senators in a landslide vote, the new legislation seeks to, quote, improve living conditions and contribute to the reduction of crime linked to drug trafficking, end quote. I'm interested to see the impact on our market as it is right now in the U.S. after a time of them being legalized in Mexico. Chelsea, would you think that this would, like, what kind of impact do you think this would have on the United States? Like, would it lead, what do you think will be the end result or our impact? I think that this is going to force us in one of two ways, which unfortunately we know which way we'll probably go. But number one, we could actually set regulations that do not force us to stay into the illicit market, quote unquote, the black market, the legacy market, because now if Mexico is doing this, it might actually be more accessible to us, better stuff, better prices. I mean, that's where a lot of our legacy market is coming from in the first place now. And if the United States continues to criminalize it and regulate legal cannabis in such a way that it might just force us into the legal Mexican market. I'm also uh, interested to see the impact this has on international policing because, you know, they they use these drug wars all the time to get into Latin America and incarcerate people and communities with the U.S. military and whatnot. So I'm interested in seeing what kind of impact this has on like foreign policy. And we have to remember that marijuana crimes are the fourth leading reason for deportation here in the United States. And so as like you said, Naomi, they'll try and crack down on whatever type of drug war they're committed to continue. I'm sure we'll also have to be looking at how it is impacting folks that are undocumented and what that means for them. And knowing right now that like myself, I speak a lot about what the impact is on black communities, but when we're actually talking about Latinx communities, we just don't have that data because of the way that we're unable to really be able to engage with folks and, and know what's happening in their life and then to be able to do that and feel safe. So really understanding the impact of what this is will be hard. And as these nation states continue to legalize, as they continue to legalize things that were criminalized once before, we have to stay vigilant to the new ways that the system is adapting to these changes, because this doesn't mean that policing is going to stop. It means that policing will change. And so will the global mass incarceration system. Well, this is the wrap up of the reframe of the last reframe of this 45 presidency. Next week, it'll be a whole new president when we're reporting. How does this feel to y'all? Well, we'll have a new president, same obstacles. So stay vigilant. Okay, so you're really excited, Nomi. Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, on to the next one. Okay, well, y'all heard it here first. This is the big day of the inauguration. Race Capital is here to say more of the same. Stay tuned. <laughs> We've got some interviews and updates on legislation right after this. Talk to me so you can see 
right on through. Right on. All right. This week on Race Capital, we have Luca Connolly from the Richmond Community Bail Fund, co-director. Thank you so much for joining us today, Luca. Thanks for having me. Uh, Luca, tell us a little bit about the Richmond Community Bail Fund. Yeah, so um, RCBF has been around in Richmond since the very beginning of 2017. We are an abolitionist organization. And what that means for us is that we post bail for anybody who calls us. If we have the money, we'll post it. We don't ask any information about charges and we don't screen folks who give us a call. We serve almost all poor folks predominantly black and brown communities in seven or eight, depending on, you know, the week facilities in and around Richmond um, in the counties. We also function as Richmond's primary protest bail fund. And you mentioned seven, eight, depending on these facilities. Can you mention a couple of the facilities that you serve? Yeah. So um, I might be able to name them all. Let's see. We do Richmond City um, and Ryko West and Ryko East, Pamunkey Jail, Riverside, Chesterfield, uh, Piedmont, and oh, I know I'm missing one. And I'm missing one as well. But when I say it depends, we're an all volunteer run organization. So we have no paid staff. So sometimes that day, somebody's willing to drive 90 minutes to post a bond. Um, and sometimes they're not. And sometimes we're getting calls from certain facilities. We mail in our information to jails. And so it gets passed around the block, the cell block. And so do 20 bonds in Chesterfield for a week but not here from Riverside because we haven't sent our number into Riverside recently or or that sort of thing. So it varies for sure. And you mentioned you're the primary source for protest bail bond. What what does that mean? Yeah. So bail funds typically run kind of separately. So there will be a bail fund that only serves folks who experience what we call everyday criminalization or come from deeply criminalized communities. And then there's protest bail fund or what in like movement histories is called jail support. And there are a few bail funds across the country that serve both of those purposes. And we're one of those. So we've been a protest bail fund in Richmond since 2018, but we do definitely center folks who experience everyday criminalization. But with the uprising, I think people started to learn about us through the protest bail fund context. And we're really surprised to hear that we not only serve folks who are held on bond outside of what is deemed political. Of course, all arrests are political, but I think folks were surprised by that. But that is who we center. But throughout the summer, I think we we kind of blew up because we were the protest bail fund. Got you. And you said some movement history of jail support, and you pointed out that all arrest incarceration is political. Can you just remind folks a little bit about why have you all decided just to bail anyone out And and this idea of legacy behind movement history and jail support. Absolutely. We bail out everyone because incarceration doesn't work. Incarceration doesn't transform anyone if they have caused harm. And most of the time, people haven't, right? Most of the charges that we see are substance use charges or like petty larceny or possession of a firearm, right? These kinds of charges that there is no the victim in that crime. And even when there is, we can really trouble that. We can trouble how the state makes its its determination. So we believe that our values do not match the state's values. We don't trust the state's values. So when the state says this person has done this, we're like, mm. <laughs> is, that, right. is that 
how it happened. Uh, and so, you know, a lot of bail funds, I think, fall into a trap of saying, well, pretrial incarceration is wrong because they haven't yet been found guilty of a crime. And we like to push that a little bit further. Who is finding that person guilty? That's, you know, I think the question that this hinges on for us. And so, yeah, we believe prisons don't work and we believe that freedom is a birthright and we want everybody out all the time. Beautiful. So what is the average cost that you're spending to release someone in your work? That's a big question. If we like ran the numbers and averaged it out, probably somewhere around three grand, three and a half. I have posted a $500 bond, right? And then we have also posted a $41,000 bond. So it's it's a huge swath. And there are a lot of things that inform that. So who's the judge that day? What does their rap sheet look like? You know, is that person black? Um, What is the crime? Does that person have previous crimes? There's a lot of questions that inform whether or not somebody is getting high bond or a bond at all. And, you know, we, we pay bonds all over the place. If they are black or not, let it go on record. Okay, so tell us right now, we are having conversations about legislation and the 2021 Virginia General Assembly. And we've been watching alerts come from the Community Bail Fund. Yeah, so HB 2152 would essentially regulate bail funds out of existence. So it's proposed by a conservative, Leslie Adams, He's a Commonwealth attorney for Pennsylvania County. This bill would require bail funds to be um, surveilled and licensed by the state and pay a $900 fee every two years for that licensure. And the bill language says, you know, for any reason, the president of this committee could say no, if you seem suspicious at all. So how hard would it be for them to say a trans girl like me is suspicious who has abolitionists all over her social media, right? But I think it it more dramatically affects the function of bail funds in that it no longer allows us to post bail over $2,000 for any any felony charges we would not be able to post. And we would only be able to post in the city where our nonprofit license address is registered. So we would only be able to post in Richmond City bonds 2000 or less for misdemeanors. We would also have to prove that the person is quote unquote financially unable. So we kind of run into that nonprofit industrial problem, right, of, of gatekeeping services of saying, you know, are you poor enough? And we don't run that way. We're also all volunteer, as I said earlier, and the administrative costs of this, and it's not just affecting Richmond Bail Fund, right? There's Roanoke Jail Solidarity or the 757 Bail Fund or Blue Ridge. So it is not a coincidence that the uprisings this summer, bail funds became popularized and known about and that this legislation appears. What I want to say, though, is that this bill is not verbatim, but extremely close in language to the bill in New York that regulated the two largest bail funds in the country out of existence. Uh, We have seen this bill before, and we have seen Dems and Republicans both pass it and regulate bail funds completely out of function. For this bill, you know, we're asking folks to to keep an eye on the bail fund pages. So Twitter and Instagram, that's at RBA Bail Fund. And we're asking for folks to really keep an eye on what we are needing from community to support us in this. We also, of course, have partners in LAJC and New Virginia Majority, other organizations that are also supporting us to keep an eye on. But we're asking folks to contact their legislators, right? We're asking them to say, hey, HB 2152, it will destroy bail funds. And as a member of this community, that's important to me. You don't even need to say, because pretrial incarceration, da, 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 da. You can just let folks know, 
I don't want this bill. Right now, it just got sent to committee to criminal justice. If folks want to reach out to those people and let them know that they do not support this legislation and want them to oppose this legislation, that's incredibly helpful. But really keeping an eye on the bail fund socials so we can kind of coordinate support from the community. Because if this bill passes, bail funds in Virginia will be rendered essentially useless. I mean, protest bonds even some of them were above 2000, right? So there is there is a lot of people that this impacts who maybe only know about the bail fund in a very particular context, but poor people especially, I mean, this is a violent attack on the communities that are most vulnerable to pretrial incarceration, right? Poor folks, black folks, brown folks, so. Right, and, and that's a really important point is that this seems to be a prosecutor's reaction to the protests that happened this past summer. But again, this will impact like you said, the people that are criminalized day to day, and that mostly looks like Black, Indigenous, Latinx community folks. And you mentioned that this bill, which is HB 2152, it's Delegate Adams. You mentioned that it is going to um, courts of justice, and they meet every Wednesday and Friday at 1 p.m., y'all. Really quickly, uh, Luca mentioned that you could reach out to your particular rep. You can look that up online, and or you can reach out to these particular legislators on that committee. I'm going to just read those names to you really quickly. These are the delegates in the House of Delegates, y'all. Herring, Watts, Hope, Keem, Simon, Sullivan, Levine, Heretic, Mullen, Bourne, Delaney, Guy, Scott, Kilgore, Bell, Edmonds, Ransom, Leftwich, Adams, who's again proposing the bill, Camden, Mayares, and Conyer. So you can reach out to any of those folks, whether you are their constituents or not, because they will be hearing this particular bill. And many times we talk about particular components that we want, but what we're hearing from the Richmond Community Bail Fund is that you can just tell these particular reps that we don't want this bill. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think something that's interesting about Adams is the new voting districting that got passed. He's also appointed to that and is somebody who is not only a Commonwealth attorney, but whose number one donor was the Virginia Trial Lawyers Association, right? Altria, Dominion, EQT, Appalachian Power Co., right? Like kind of a classic. (laughs) Thank you for that context. And if you haven't been watching the redistricting committee that's been appointed, it has been a train wreck and Race Capital might need to do an episode to update folks on what's happening there. But thank you so much, Luca, from the Richmond Community Bail Fund. Tell everyone again really quickly how they can continue to follow you all, how they can continue to support the work so you can continue to bail people out as well as follow the legislation. Yeah, absolutely. So you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RVA Bail Fund. You can donate and read our fiscal transparency statement on our website, rbabailfund.org. We're an all-volunteer organization, and um, every penny goes towards serving incarcerated folks. Thank you so much for having me, Chelsea. Thank you. Well, we'll be watching, and stay tuned, y'all.
We have back on Race Capital, friend to the show, Omari Al-Qaddafi. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, as we've mentioned many of times, you are also a leading, a leading advocate in the housing space, and we are covering vital legislation that's happening in the 2021 Virginia Legislative Session, and we are here to hear about what's happening in evictions. Omari, tell us a little bit about the problem with evictions in Virginia, in case anyone hasn't been paying attention. Yeah, um, in case anyone hasn't been paying attention, I don't know how you could have missed it in the past uh, couple years, but Virginia, and particularly Richmond, has been in the national spotlight. Richmond is uh, leading the country in evictions for cities of this size. And several of the cities in Virginia are also at the top of the list in leading the country in evictions. Housing instability is very high in uh, the Commonwealth of Virginia and in Richmond. And that was prior to the pandemic. Yeah, this was even prior to the pandemic, but during the pandemic, it's really increased dramatically. And so some protections that were put in place throughout the pandemic, uh, moratoriums here and there and rent relief were able to push back on the tide that we thought that there would be like a, a really big overflow of evictions coming into Virginia and the various temporary things that were done were able to kind of push it back a little, but a lot of that stuff is expiring now. Some of the federal protections are expiring, state protections have expired, and so now we need to keep the ball moving forward for housing justice for everyone in Virginia. And that leads us to the legislation that is proposed. Tell us a little bit about what's happening in the General Assembly with housing. Yeah, so there's a few bills that are kind of on my radar and a lot of the other housing advocates that are in my circle. During the special session of last year, the fall special session, they had extended the five-day pay-or-quit notice in Virginia and made it a 14-day pay-or-quit notice just to give people a little more time to, to pay off their, uh, their debt to their landlord. And so now that protection would end in uh, this summer uh, at the end of June. And so what we would like to do is to make that permanent. Virginia really needs to take some drastic steps to get out of the hole that it's dug itself into in terms of housing instability for decades, if not centuries, the laws have been just really favorable to landlords. That's led us to the situation that we have now. So, I mean, it's not unheard of for states to have 14-day pay or quit. Uh, there's a, at least like five states that offer some sort of 14-day uh, notice. Uh, Washington, D.C. has 30-day notice, and, and various other states have, have different means of time. But Virginia it's really important that Virginia take the step to become no longer the leader in evictions, but actually be the leader in providing housing stability for all people. That bill number, it's in the House, uh, HB 1889. It's getting a lot of pushback from landlords. The, there's another provision of that bill that would require large landlords to offer repayment plans on uh, remaining balances that would be like spread throughout 
the course of the tenancy and give people more time to pay stuff back. Which um, would but, make sense. This sounds like a reasonable request, right. especially for the big landlords. Right. And so this is all, it's important to, to realize that everything that's being put in place is being designed to make everyone whole. It's been designed to make the landlord whole and to help the tenant to make the landlord whole, you know? And so some, it's really interesting, some of the pushback that we're seeing while many landlords will say that having a vacant unit, that it's costly, that there's a cost to turnover and everything. But when protections are being put in place so that tenants can have resources to pay them the money that they're owed, they seem to not want it. Right. Okay. So what are some other important pieces of legislation you're watching? We have a HB 1900, which will allow tenants who have been unlawfully evicted to get damages from the landlord. So right now, that bill, HB 1900, says that uh, you, a tenant would be able to sue the landlord and get up to $5,000 in damages or four months rent, whichever is higher. So what happens is that if, if a landlord illegally evicts you, sometimes this might happen on a Friday, you know, and you would have to go into court to file the paperwork to say, hey, this person has illegally evicted me. Uh, and I, I want them to stop. And basically the the judge, they might rule, hey, landlord, stop doing that. Let them back in. Hey, landlord, don't cut off the electricity, turn it back on, turn the water back on, you know, however um, that illegal eviction looks like. And then there's, but there's not much recourse for the tenant to be made whole for, you know, whatever extra time it took them to get to work or having to stay at a friend's house or, you know, the transportation costs and uh, whatever uh, disruption that would have caused to their life. Right. Uh, so, so this bill would, not only is it allowing the tenant to recover damages, but what we, it really would be is a deterrent to landlords from even doing the illegal evictions in the first place. Exactly. And we've seen the call for eviction defense from the community based on many of these illegal evictions. So this type of response to the legislature, legislatures is needed. Is this also Delegate Price's bill? This is a Delegate Hudson's bill. Great. Thank you so much to Sally Hudson for that response. What else are you watching, Amari? Uh, we're also looking at a bill that I don't have the bill number for this one yet. Uh, it would be expanding the right of redemption. So right now, if you come up with all of the money from your eviction case, no less than two business days before the sheriff actually comes to your door, if you come up with all that money that is owed, then you can stay. You know, you have a right to stay if you come up with all the money. That you can only use that right once per year, you know, whether a landlord, you know, they can take the money, you know, um, if they want to and, and, you know, cancel the eviction, but you have the right to cancel the eviction only once per year. So what this bill would do is to get a, get rid of that once per year restriction. If you, if you think about it, you know, it just makes sense. As long as the person is able to come up with the money, then they should be able to stay. Right. You know, and, but 
I think you you'll see it will be interesting to see who is going to be opposed to this type of legislation because it really shows you that sometimes all money I guess is not green depending on you know sometimes it might depend on the complexion of the person who's carrying that green money you know you never know and it's not to say that all landlords are racist or anything like that but this would be getting rid of the that gray area where uh, a landlord would have the option to exercise their racism. Exactly. And um, I really, I really appreciate your point about these are proposals to make everyone whole. And so creating more opportunity to pay back and, and to have people stay in their houses as well as the landlord be able to receive payment is, is something that you all are coming together to propose. So uh, right now, HB 1889 is going to be heard uh, in the Housing Consumer Protection Subcommittee Thursday, uh, which is uh, tomorrow. Uh, Tomorrow at 7 a.m. is where we expect HB 1889 to be heard. Between now and then, we will be emailing the delegates of that committee because um, as we learned from the last year's special session, the landlords did a really great job of mobilizing and <laughs> to oppose a lot of protections that were being uh, proposed for tenants. And they were reaching out to the delegates and they were, you know, they had people lined up for testimony and everything. So we want to beat them at their own game this, this time around. Uh, so the delegates that are on that committee are Delegate Brewer, Delegate Converse Fowler, Delegate LaCherise Ayer, uh, Delegate Price, Delegate Simon, Delegate Wright, and Delegate Wampler. But as we know, a bill needs to have a version also in the Senate in order for it to become a law. You know, it has to pass the House and it also has to pass the Senate. So uh, there is a Senate version of HB 1889 already, and that's uh, Senate Bill one two one five senate bill 1215 and that is actually going to be we expect it to be heard today uh wednesday in committee so that would be the general laws committee uh and you know we can start emailing those uh senators also uh, that's senator barker senator ruff senator lock senator vogel eben reeves mcpike mason senator donovan boisco Senator Stewart, Pillion, Senator Bell, Senator Hashmi, and Senator Kiggins. So if uh, any of those senators strike your fancy, if you have a relationship or anything with them, if they're in your uh, district, they're your representative, reach out to them and uh, let them know that Senate Bill 1215, which is the bill, that's the Senate version of uh, HB 1889, which is the bill that would allow the 14 day notice. Great. Okay. So we will definitely have to continue to keep up with you. And if other folks need to keep up with these bills, how can they do that on the digital world? Um, So we've been doing a great job of organizing virtually this session. Um, We, in the second day of the session uh, last week, we had a lot of people give a testimony for HB 1900. Uh, People woke up at 7 a.m., you know, all over the the state 
and you know woke up and gave their testimony. So um, I I think that the easiest thing would probably just be to email me. Honestly, my email is a o m a r i at justiceforall.org. And that's the number four in there, uh, justiceforall.org, Omari at justiceforall.org, because, you know, I've been updating people through emails. Uh, we have like an email list with everyone who's interested in, uh, in testifying, a lot of tenants all across uh, Virginia. So that's, that's probably the easiest way. So Omari, you're doing this housing work specifically with legislation with Legal Aid Justice Center, and you just gave everyone your email there to join the contact list if folks are interested in testifying for the General Assembly on these particular bills and staying updated. And before I let you out of here, I really do want to touch on a local issue that's happening right here in Richmond, Virginia, that you're also amplifying across social media with a meeting that's happening today with Richmond Redevelopment Housing Authority. Can you give us a little bit of background about what has been uh, some issues that you've been seeing really alarming with RRHA? Yeah, I mean, there's been uh, a lot of issues with transparency and access to meetings and uh, notice of uh, meetings that's been happening at the Housing Authority. Several key resolutions that they've passed that are related to the demolition of public housing complexes, particularly Creighton Court uh, here in Richmond. Those key votes, the public was never really notified that those votes were taking place. There's been times where people have signed up for to speak at certain meetings and then they're told that, oh, you know, you, you, you spoke within the past three months, so you can't, you know, you can't speak to these issues today. You know, um, we had their director of public safety. He was barring people from coming into a meeting at one point. So we've been trying to get them just to be uh, better about providing access to these meetings uh, and just, engaging the residents in a way that uh, empowers them to be more uh, civically engaged in the, the policy making at the housing authority. And so. But it, it seems like that the RRHA isn't even agreeing with you all that there hasn't been a transparent process. Yeah. Uh, at the last board meeting, I had raised a number of these concerns. Um, even at that, the last board meeting back in December, that day they were voting to on the demolition of the remaining two phases of Creighton Court. Uh, the agenda for that meeting wasn't posted until that morning of that, that meeting. So no one in the community really knew that that vote was taking place. And, you know, I was letting the board know this, but chairperson of the board, they pretty much called me a liar and said that, uh, no, we are always compliant. The residents always know, but... Agency failed to provide an accurate summary of the public comments and concerns. 5th District City Council Member Parker Agilasto criticized Richmond Redevelopment and Housing Authority's lack of public notice and engagement. You know, if you go talk to any Creighton resident, you know, except for maybe some that, that may be really close to the housing authority staff, maybe they knew about the meeting, but if, if you talk to the vast majority of residents in Creighton Court, they, they'll tell you that they never knew that a vote was taking place. And what are you hearing from the community when you are, when they are able to voice their concerns? 
I am the president of Creighton Courts. Where Creighton is today, it's very heartbreaking to see this community um, the way it is in the spirit of the people because of the situation we're in at this time. Because we're in a position now where we have actually no other options. It's very isolated. It's a lot of vacant apartments. It's a lot of um, loss of spirit in the community. So right now, people say that the it's it's kind of a desperate situation right now in Creighton Court. You know, there's half of the units are vacant, and at least 220 of the 503 units are currently vacant. Uh, the the youth around the community, they're you know going inside of the vacant houses, coming into contact with the police. People are getting arrested. It doesn't feel safe around there at night. And from what I'm hearing on the ground is that it, it just feels so lifeless over there you know people say that they even it even makes them think about the community members that used to live there like some people say that sometimes they they look over at the abandoned the vacant units and they they just can remember friends that used to live there and so you know all of that i think is taking quite a toll on the residents over there um and it's really it's it's a messed up situation uh, and we we had we had warned the community that this was going to take place, that these types of tactics were going to be used in order to, you know, get people, run people away. And, and speaking of that, we heard just last week in city council, a lot of the very friendly advocates with the landlords, as they were talking about ordinances, um, talking about these many units were left uh, vacant on purpose. I guess the really egregious thing of it all is that during the pandemic, you know, where in this city, we're having all kinds of issues trying to care for our homeless population. We're having all kinds of issues with so many thousands of people on the waiting list. 12,000 people had signed up for the waiting list when it opened in October, you know, and we're leaving units vacant good units that could be housing families they're being left vacant so when we when we think about the community violence that's occurring in, in other places maybe in public housing and we think about you know what happens when people have to you know go to other parts of town to stay over friends houses what happens when multiple families are in one household what kind of stress does that place on that household and you know, resonates throughout the community. So it's it's very problematic to me that these units would be just left vacant right there in the capital city. You're absolutely right. And you mentioned violence happening in the city and using the word violence as defined by the media and the establishment. But what we're hearing from you is that this is the actual violence that's happening is not housing people during a pandemic waiting for big development deals and and using these as excuses to why we can't just house people right now it, it sounds like more state sanctioned violence yeah i mean it's it's definitely violence against the community itself in that way that you're describing and it's also it, it results in community violence like on an individual level you know so right right and, and that's why we always talk about the systemic violence that is truly what creates the symptoms of these individual harms against one another, just trying to survive. 
Um, Omari, as this RRHA meeting takes place tonight um, and we're watching the result of it tomorrow, what should we be looking out for and how can people continue to follow what's happening with RRHA? So, yeah, that meeting is tonight at 5.30. It's a virtual meeting. You can participate in that by phone or, uh, you know, by Zoom link. Stay tuned to Leaders of the New South Community Council for Housing on Facebook, uh, RVA New South on Twitter, Leaders of the New South on Instagram, and that's where typically I'll post updates and keep everyone, uh, you know, notified about what's going on with the Housing Authority. We will include the link for that in the description. So follow Race Capital on any podcast platform and look at our description. We'll make sure we have a link here. Thank you so much, Omari Al-Qaddafi with Leaders of the New South and Legal Aid Justice Center bringing us all the information. Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Always, always. So Chelsea and Kalia, I know y'all have both been really busy this week with your social justice advocacy um, as a cannabis lover and a student. I've been really interested to see what kind of legislation is happening over in the GA. So Kalia, I'll start with you. Are there any higher education bills that you all over at BSPN have been keeping an eye on? We're keeping our eye on a few bills. Last year in the General Assembly, in-state tuition for all students, regardless of documentation status, passed after nearly a 10-year fight. And this year, there's a bill up in the GA that would allow for in-state tuition for all students, regardless of documentation status, but it includes eligibility for state financial aid. So this will likely necessitate creating another tool outside of the FAFSA, which is that form that we all remember, the long one that asks us for our social security number and a lot of questions about citizenship status in order to receive your financial aid funds. So they will have to create another tool outside of that for students that do not have documentation status, most likely. So we're keeping an eye on that bill this year. And we're also looking out for this Board of Visitor Transparency Bill that is being put in by Delegate Mark Keene. This one would make it so that University Board of Visitors would have to allow a public comment period before deciding on any big ticket budget items such as large capital projects. So that would mean that they have to hear from the public, namely the students, before making these huge decisions. And can you just explain what the role of the Board of Visitors is uh, in a university for our listeners? Yes. So universities have Board of Visitors or Board of Trustees, and these are politically appointed positions that are appointed by the governor, and they are a board that essentially makes all of the decisions for universities. They decide the budgets, they decide how much tuition is going to be, if it goes up, if it freezes, if it goes down. And they also decide on those huge projects, like when VCU buys a huge mansion building, that's $3 million, or when George Mason expands into uh, more communities in Northern Virginia, the Board of Visitors make these decisions. And in them being politically appointed, it's also important to know that they oftentimes have ties to large corporations, such as Dominion, Altria. We know at VCU, Peter Farrell, Tom Farrell's son, 
who is the former CEO of Dominion and sits on the board of Altria, is sitting on the board of visitors at VCU. So we see that this university statewide power map, it's insidious once you really start drawing it out. And so this bill would do the bare minimum, which is to make sure that the board of visitors have to at least hold a public comment period before they vote. It doesn't say that they would have to vote one way or the other, but it does say that they would have to hear from the students and the community. And so how can folks keep up to date with what's happening with these higher education bills and how can they follow the work that VSPN is doing? So both of these bills are currently in the House Higher Ed Subcommittee. And as they move through hopefully the committee and the larger house, there will be updates to the Virginia Student Power Network social media. And you can find that at VA Student Power on all social media platforms. Chelsea, as you know, marijuana has been the talk of session and we've seen some movement in the Senate with legalization. What's happened so far this week that you can tell us about? Well, Some movement is happening in the Senate. As you said, last week, the Senate committee actually created a special committee on marijuana. And then on Tuesday, they met early in the morning for a very in-depth committee hearing where they heard testimony and discussed the regulatory body that will oversee cannabis, whether to integrate it with ABC or creating a brand new agency. And if you've been following along, the JLARC study that was created to really highlight options of social equity shows that an independent study would allow more for social equity implementation rather than a quick um, implementation, a quick jump start to collecting that coin as the proposal is right now. So that's what's happened so far this week. Okay. And what can people expect between now and when we come back next week? Well, they actually met again this morning. So we'll see how that turns out. And then we expect it to come up in the full committee on Friday. If it's voted out of this new subcommittee for marijuana, it would then go to judiciary. And that's when we talk a lot more about the expungements, about being inclusive, um, and, and really talk a little bit more about the criminal justice pieces. But we still hope to hear more about the reinvestment, whether that's money is going to things like rent relief, especially here in Virginia with the eviction problems that we have. We saw Home actually testify today and talking about the problems of evictions around these criminalizations and the reinvestment opportunity that we have in Virginia. So we'll keep a lookout for that too. And there's definitely a lot to dissect and follow. So how can people continue to keep up with all that's happening with marijuana legalization? People that are asking to keep up um, are going to marijuanajustice.org. They're following the ACLU page and they're tuning in Saturdays at 3 p.m. on the Marijuana Justice page for Canna Hour where updates are happening and entrepreneurs from across the country are coming to talk about cannabis and people are able to really ask questions about what's happening in legislation. That's happening every Saturday at 3 through session with marijuana justice yes well thank you both Kalia and Chelsea for all the advocacy work that y'all are doing to keep us up to date uh, with what is happening during this session well that's all for race capital for this week catch us next week at 10 a.m on WRIR LP 97.3 FM Richmond Independent Radio 